following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And uh, review some of the key points of how the story of Joseph began. Uh, It starts off as a story of incredible jealous hatred between brothers, right? If you go back to the earlier parts of the story, uh, it starts off with Jacob singling out and loving Joseph uh, above his other sons. And, uh, of course, we know the story of Joseph in his coat of many colors, his special coat, and it was just a symbol of of Jacob's very special love for one son. And uh, it would be tempting to, uh, to fault Jacob with loving Joseph too much. Uh, but that really isn't the issue. And I would say that if you're a father, uh, you, you never gain equality by loving one of your children less. Okay, that's not the goal. Okay, Jacob's love for Joseph was what a father's love should be. And the fullness and extent of his love was a good thing. All right? The fault or the, the downfall was that he didn't have the capacity to multiply it by 12. He could do it once pretty well, but he exhausted his limited human capacity for love. Uh, And so what happened is there was a great inequity, uh, an unbalance of loving Joseph inordinately too much uh, to the neglect of his other brothers. And we don't know that he didn't love his other sons. It it doesn't look like it as you read through the story. Um, But the it's important to note, it's important to note that his love for Joseph was good. And it's what a father's love should be. Very caring, very affectionate, blessing his son, making him feel uh, the apple of his father's eye. Right? But of course, his brother's response to that love was, was just je- jealous hatred. Right? They hated him. Um, and uh, je- jealousy, I, I looked up the word jealous because I wanted, I wanted to get a good dictionary definition. Dictionary definition, jealousy is feeling bitter and unhappy because of another's advantages. Unhappy because you want something someone else has. Uh, And the brothers, the uh, ten brothers of Joseph saw his his elevated treatment by his father, and it created in them intense jealousy, right? Now, I would add to that definition a little bit, okay? And I think there's really three dynamics going on in the Joseph story that are important. Um, it's true that they wanted something else that someone else had. They wanted what Joseph had. They wanted that kind of attention and love and affection for themselves. Okay, But it was more than that. Um, and the issue is this, that they, they saw themselves as, as more deserving of that love than Joseph. And this is the way jealousy works. You know, Jealousy is wanting what somebody else has. And if we know that somebody deserves what they have, we may be a bit envious. We may wish we had uh, what they had, but we usually don't hate them for it, right? The, the hatred element comes in specifically when the person who's getting more than we are is below us, okay? So, for, so here's the deal. Nobody faults a super rock star for being famous. Nobody says, well, they shouldn't be famous. I should be famous because we love our heroes, right? We love heroes. We need heroes. We need people to look up to, and we like having people that we can worship. And we never become jealous of those people. 
All right, so your star quarterback, your star soccer player, you name it, you know, none of us go, <clears throat> I should have got the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> you know, I should have been Super Bowl MVP, right? No, because our superheroes deserve that status. Now, we may admire them for it, but we don't feel jealousy when it's within the right social order. But there is a social order, and jealousy comes when the MVP, the superstar, the one that gets the credit and the glory, is not the superhero, but the super nothing. Right? And that was really the issue with Joseph and his brothers. Here's the deal. If it had been Reuben who had got this coat of special colors and all the extra attention, Reuben as the oldest, nobody would have thought a thing about it. Okay? There would have been no jealousy because it would have followed right custom and social order. But who was Joseph? Was he the oldest? Was he the second oldest? Was he the third oldest? No, he was the baby. He was the least, right? And that's where jealousy comes in. Okay? We, by nature, uh, elevate ourselves by putting others down, right? Uh, Part of human nature, part of what pride is all about is making ourselves feel good about ourselves and being somebody by looking at the landscape around us and noticing everybody below us. And this is so much a part of human nature that society is built on this principle, right? And we have, in every society, in every culture, we have built these caste systems. Now, some of them, it's very, like in India, where it's very, where there's labels for it, it's very blatant and and, uh, obvious, it's there. But it's just as there in in less, uh, less obvious and more democratic cultures and societies, right? So we each have these people we look down at, right? And real jealousy comes when people who are beneath us get what we want, right? Who we think we deserve. And that was the real issue with Joseph and his brothers. <clears throat> uh, when those below us, like, and then, and then here's the capstone of it all. Okay, so we want what other people have. When the other people are getting it and they're below us socially, okay, we feel bitterness, we feel jealousy. But here's the worst of it all. When the people who we know are below us see themselves as above us and deserving. That just is like the straw that breaks the camel's back. And that was Joseph, right? He was the least, the youngest, but he had these crazy dreams that said, you guys are all going to bow to me and someday I'm going to rule over you. Okay, well that just, you know, if you're going to seal your own death warrant, which is what Joseph did, that did it. right? And that's human nature. And uh, in that story, it's, a, it's significant to note that when uh, Joseph takes his uh, special coat and goes off wandering through the wilderness looking for his brothers and they find him, they plot to kill him. And the ringleader behind all this is Judah, right? And uh, Reuben actually stands up and and, uh, has kind of a half-hearted attempt to rescue Joseph. But kind of waging war against Reuben is Judah, uh, who is also one of the older children, and he is a very influential ringleader who convinces his brothers, let's not waste his blood on our conscience. Let's just sell him and make money off the deal. And Judah is the one who negotiates this deal and sells Joseph out of his hatred, out of his hatred and jealousy, sells his little brother into slavery in Egypt. All right? Uh, and you could say that as the, as the leader of his brothers, he really bears the greatest responsibility and blame for the crime. I mean, they're all in it together. But for Judah, it's, it's, uh, 
he carries the extra burden of it. Um, we are all proud and selfish like that. And, and one of the things that we need to take away from this account is how much human nature uh, causes us to want to elevate ourselves and see ourselves as better than others, right? Uh, we, we do make ourselves great by making others small. Uh, and we do it, you know, when we do it, we do it in ways and means that are culturally acceptable, okay? Which means we have license for it, right? We, we build systems in our societies and families and structures that we all know there are people below us, right? Whether it's because they have less education, less looks, less smart, less, uh, less athletic ability, right? Less age. Uh, and we, we see it quickly. We can identify it quickly and easily in other cultures. So if you're here visiting or, you know, as a foreigner in Asia, we can look at the whole Penang thing in, in Thai culture and just be kind of horrified by it, right? Uh, but we don't see it in our own culture. We don't see how we look down on people. And the reality is <clears throat> that if we give careful thought and attention, we do look down on people. Uh, the poor, the oppressed, the weak, right? The crippled, the lame, the blind. Uh, who is it that you look down on? Uh, maybe your little brother, <laughs> your little sister. You know, maybe... Uh, you know, if you're a senior, you look down on freshmen. If you're a freshman, you look down on seventh graders. If you're a seventh grader, you look down on sixth graders, right? It's always somebody. Always somebody we can put ourselves over. And when those people get what we want, it, it, it makes us feel angry, right? It triggers this jealousy. And much like our, our great, great, great grandparents, Adam and Eve, we are co- not content to be the highest of creation. We want to be not only highest over God's created order, order of the animals, what he's made. We want to be highest over our brothers and sisters, and ultimately over God himself. That's human nature. That's the pride that drives us. Uh, and, and, of course, the selfishness that goes along with that. Okay, it's all about me. Judah was looking out for himself. He was looking to bolster his own glory. So that's the beginning of the story. Okay, it's important to keep that perspective as we move towards the end of the story. One other uh, review, I think by way of review we need to remember, is that of all the brothers in the Joseph story, the only one who gets his own special sidebar is Judah. And uh, I don't know what the other brothers were like. We don't know. No details about whether they were good, bad, if, what kind of horrible deeds they did during the Joseph cycle. We got a little bit of the uh, Simeon and Reuben um, and Levi who all sinned, but before the Joseph story. But in the Joseph story, Judah gets his own sidebar. You remember his sidebar? Uh, Judah moves away from home, gets married, has three sons. Uh, his two oldest sons are so wicked, God kills them. Just flat out kills them off. Doesn't say why, what the wickedness was, but they were even more wicked than Judah. Okay, which says a lot, because Judah wasn't exactly like Mr. Sunday School. Um, uh, as an Following the Leverite marriage, uh, Judah's oldest son, when he died, his wife Tamar gets passed on to the second son to fulfill uh, the duty of the Leverite marriage to the oldest brother. Uh, but he also proves to be very wicked and will not fulfill his duty by Tamar, and so God kills him. So if you remember in this story, uh, Judah sees 
that Tamar is bad luck for his sons, right? So in order to protect his third and last son, he uh, deceives Tamar and does not let her marry uh, his third son, his youngest son, right? And he protects her. And, of course, through all this, Tamar gets kind of even with him, plots, and uh, he actually ends up uh, sleeping with Tamar and having two twin, twin children by her. Uh, and in the end, he claims, you know, she is more right than I, right? And uh, we see what's interesting in that story is we see a little bit of, of Judah's change in roles from a son who's a rebellious jerk to a father who's a loving father. Even though his sons are wicked, he, he loves his sons. Uh, he, he grows up, he becomes a parent himself, and he himself suffers loss and grief. So what's significant about the Judah story is that the very thing that he inflicted on his father when he told his father that Joseph had been torn to pieces by wild beasts and was lost, this precious son, uh, Judah experiences the pain and loss of that two times over. Okay, He knows from first-hand experience what it is to be a parent and lose a child. right? And uh, kind of as a spin-off of that, we see him... And this folly with Tamar and his third son. And it's, it's an understandable kind of crazy father love, right? Uh, he does this because of his love for his third son and he wants to protect him, right? He's pretty sure this lady is like the kiss of death and he doesn't want her getting anywhere near his son because he loves his third son. And he wants to protect his third son. And so he does some kind of stupid things, but it's really born out of this crazy father love, right? And uh, it's important to keep that also kind of in a, as a backdrop as we, as we go to the end story because Judah plays a big role. And I think these events are significant in helping us understand what happens in chapter 43 and 44. So let's look at chapter 43 and 44. And I'm going to, like I said, it's way too long to read through the whole thing. I encourage you to read on your own at home. But let me just summarize briefly uh, the, the key components of the story. Um, if you remember in chapter 42, they had gone to Egypt once already. They had met Joseph, but they didn't know it. Joseph recognized them. And in his shrewdness and, and wisdom, uh, Joseph begins to put some pieces together, and he wants to find out where the brothers are at. And so he sets a test for them, and he says, before you come back, you must bring back Benjamin. If you remember, uh, Jacob has now transferred his his number one child love from Joseph to Benjamin. And he is the overprotective parent who will not let Benjamin leave. And so Joseph says, you will not see my face, you will not come back before me until you, unless you bring Benjamin with you. So we start off chapter 43, and it says, the famine continued to ravage the land. And when the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, actually it was probably well gone, because as the story progresses, it becomes evident that a lot of time has gone by. And Jacob, unlike his first time when he said to his sons, chapter 42, he said to, he says to his boys, what are you doing just standing around staring at each other? Go get some food, you know. Notice the change of tone now. He says, um, go back and buy us a little more food, right? Total change, total change of attitude. Well, what's behind this? Well, the, the brothers told Jacob, we can't go back unless you send Benjamin. And, and, and Jacob says, I'm not going to do it. I am not sending Benjamin, I will not lose another son, right? 
So the story starts off with this uh, kind of negotiation phase where Jacob is very reluctant to send uh, Benjamin. He says, I don't want to do it. And there's some argument about why they even had to mention that he had this brother. And um, they negotiate. And, and Judah is the one who steps in. Judah is the one who steps up to the plate. And uh, Judah <coughs> actually guarantees Benjamin's life. He says, in verse 8, send the boy with me and we will be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation. Not only we, but you and our little ones as well. I personally guarantee his safety. Okay, that's kind of a sign of a different Judah. Uh, you may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Let me bear the blame forever. If we hadn't wasted all this time, we could have gone and returned twice by now. So with that, Jacob, even though he's reluctant, uh, finally agrees. And uh, in in almost a sense of despair and giving up, he says, all right, just go. And he calls God's blessing. He prays, may God bless you. May God give you favor with this man. Uh, May Simeon return and may Benjamin return. May God be with you. And he ends with this painful expression. He says, if I am going to be bereaved by the loss of my children, then I will be bereaved. He kind of turns it into God's hands. And probably the first sane moment in his life, he realized, I can't control this. I got to leave it up to God. So the brothers rush down to Egypt. Uh, They take the express donkeys, you know, hightail it to Egypt because they are out of food. Uh, And they go again with some, some anxiety, Right? And they're not sure about this, this person they refer to through the story as the man. They're not sure about the man. Uh, they're kind of worried about the man. And uh, they get there, and the man is actually quite kind. And he greets them, and he says, oh, you're going to eat at my house today, which they are convinced is a plot to attack them. And they're just convinced that the man is going uh, to get on them because he had put the money back in their grain sacks on the previous visit, and that they have been set up, right? And they're really worried that because this guy has set them up, he's going to come upon them in their home and turn them all into slaves, and their life is over. So they go to the household servant, the manager, and they say, look, um, you know, we got to clear some things up here. The money thing, we didn't know, okay? We went home, the money was just in our sacks. We, d- we don't know, and we brought it all back. And they're kind of groveling on the dirt, and they're trying to smooth things over because they're really worried about this. Uh, the manager, the steward says to them, <clears throat> uh, he says, relax. Don't worry about it. Your God, the God of your father, must have put this treasure in your sacks. I know I received your money. Right? And then, so that kind of puts them at ease a little. And then uh, they bring out Simeon, who had been held as a hostage until they returned. Well, all of a sudden now, things are looking brighter. And they, for the first time, start to breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. (sighs) Well, maybe this is going to work out okay. And they go into Joseph's house, and he prepares this amazing elaborate feast for them. And there is good food, and Joseph is kind to them, and he asks about their father, and he asks about Benjamin. And at the sight of Benjamin, of course, they don't see this, but he is so overcome with emotion, he must run to his room where he breaks down and cries. Uh, and you see this picture of Joseph as this very compassionate brother who, who loves his brothers, right? But they don't see that. They see this stern, 
um, ruler of Egypt. Well, they sit down to the meal, and uh, they are amazingly seated from youngest to oldest. And at the end, with uh, five times as much food, is Benjamin, right? And they're going, okay, this is weird. <laughs> this is weird, but hey, you know, uh, they keep pouring the wine, and life is good, right? And they drink up. Apparently, they drink a lot because it says they were very merry and had a good time, and uh, they just, you know... They're, they're starting to kind of relax. They're letting down their guard. Uh, it seems as though the, the danger has passed. And Joseph seems to be uh, satisfied. The man seems to be satisfied that they are not spies. And he loads up their bags with abundance of food. And uh, they go to bed and sleep well because, uh, you know, they're not anxious. They're not worried. And they had plenty to drink. And they wake up the next morning, and they're sent on their way. But little do they know that during the night, while they slept, Joseph was making plans. And he told his manager, fill their bags, put their money back, put double money back. They're not paying for the grain. And I want you to take my special silver cup, and I want you to put it in Benjamin's bag. Right? So the manager doesn't ask questions. He does what he's told. And the guys get just past the city gate, and all of a sudden they see flashing headlights in the background. You know, state patrol is running them down. Woo! Sirens going off. Woo! They pull their donkeys over. Man, I, I know I wasn't speeding. <laughs> What's the speed limit here? I don't know. Right? Officer steps up and says, "Please step out of the car, sir." <laughs> and they know they're in trouble. And he says, "Why have you treated my master's kindness with this evil?" that you would take his precious special cup, right? Uh, and apparently this was a cup that in Egypt was used not only for drinking, but for divining and telling the future. So it was uh, a sacred object, right? Well, they are so convinced of their innocence. You know, they know they would not have done How could they be so? How could any of the brothers be that stupid, right? So they are confident of their, their, their innocence so much that they tell, they tell the officer, look, we brought the money back. Why would we bring back the money just to steal again? That's just stupid. We would, who would do that? And they're kind of, they said, look, we're so confident that if you find that cup in our possession, we'll kill the brother who has it, and the rest of us will serve as your slaves. And the, the, the officer says, okay, that sounds good, but here's what we'll do. You'll all be free to go, but the one who has the cup will become a slave. So they start again. Uh, magically, with the oldest brother, and he searches through every sack. Ten, nine, well, eleven, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. They get to Benjamin's sack, opens Benjamin's sack, and guess what? There is the cup. And when the brothers see the cup, okay, they tear their clothes in grief, right? They are beside themselves. Uh, it's interesting, the parallels with the earlier story before they tore, they, tore, they tore Joseph's cloak, right, and presented it to their father. Now they're tearing their own clothes uh, in grief. Okay, this, this is bad news. Okay, we, we thought about the setup. We, you know, we, we thought we were off too soon. They all pack their bags. They head back to Egypt. They come into Joseph's presence. And notice what Judah says. Uh, in verse 14, chapter 44, verse 14, Joseph was still in his palace when Judah and his brothers arrived, and they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph declared, 
demanded, what have you done? Don't you know that a man like me can predict the future? And, and Judah answers. Notice what Judah says. Oh, my Lord, what can we say? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered our guilt. God has uncovered our guilt. Well, does that mean that they felt they were guilty of stealing the cup? Well, certainly Judah, Judah didn't. Uh, they, may have, they may have felt that, I mean, they didn't know. But they may have felt that Benjamin was stupid enough to steal the cup. I don't know, right? But certainly Judah wasn't confessing here his own guilt of stealing the cup. What guilt is he confessing? Well, as we saw in the, in the last chapter last week, these guys all were carrying on this huge burden of guilt. They were haunted by what they had done to Joseph. And uh, they know now that God has uncovered their guilt and God has exposed their sin. And Judah knows that this is not about the cup. This is not about this little petty theft. This is about God nailing them for their sin against Joseph. And he says, what can we say? There is nothing we can say. And so he begins to plead uh, with Joseph for mercy. right? And he gives a very impassioned... In fact, it is the longest speech in the book of Genesis. Okay, uh, This speech of Judah's is the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. And it is a very tender and powerful speech. And I'm, I am going to read this because it is... Uh, so key to the story. And I want you to notice Judah's uh, description of his father Jacob, okay? And not only that, but his, uh, how he describes Jacob's love for Benjamin. This is what he says. He says, God is punishing us for our sins. My Lord, speaking to, to Joseph, we have all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. But but Judah steps forward and says, Please, my Lord, let your servant say just one word to you. Please do not be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. My Lord, previously you asked us, your servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we responded, yes, my Lord, we have a father who is an old man, and his youngest son is a child of his old age. His full brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him very much. And you said to us, bring him here so I can see him with my own eyes. But we said to you, my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for his father would die. But you told us, unless your Youngest brother comes with you. You will never see my face again. So we returned to your servant, our father, and told him what you had said. Later, when he said, go back and buy us some more food, we replied, we can't go unless you let our youngest brother go with us. We'll never get to see the man's face unless your youngest brother is with us. Then my father said to us, as you know, my wife had two sons. And one of them went away and never returned. Doubtless he was torn to pieces by some wild animal. I have never seen him since. Now, if you take his brother away from me and any harm comes to him, you will send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. And now, my Lord, 
I cannot go back to my father without this boy. Our father's life is bound up with the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving, white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guarantee to my father that I would not take that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So you see, uh, Judah doesn't even try to prove their innocence. Right? He does not appeal to Joseph on the base of whether or not they are right or wrong. He presents to Joseph a case appealing for mercy. And the gist of it is this. He says, my, you know, my father is an old man. Uh, a dear old man who is dear to us as his brothers, as his sons. Uh, but especially, our father is, is attached in a very special way to this son, Benjamin. They are very close. And as you, as you hear Judah describe this, notice that there is no bitterness in this, right? There is no hatred in this. He upholds his father's love for Benjamin as a, as a treasured gift, right? as something to be honored, as something to hold in high esteem. And he says, look, on the, on the basis of that, we are appealing to you to be merciful, right? Because if you exact this harsh, harsh, harsh punishment on Benjamin, it will kill his father. And then finally, he clinches the argument with this. Okay, if mercy is not enough, if, if compassion is not enough, he finishes it with this. He says, So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I could not bear to see the anguish this would, come, this would bring to my father. Amazing. Okay, so here's Judah, the guy who sold Joseph, right? Now... Uh, changed right a changed guy and he says look i can't i can't go back right so please let me be the substitute let me stand in benjamin's place i would rather sacrifice my life and become your slave for the rest of my days in egypt rather than lose uh, benjamin and have to face my father and see his broken heart well it's an amazing story of um of a guy who has changed, right? A guy who is radically changed. And uh, we're supposed to look at the beginning of the story and the end and look at Judah and go, wow, what happened to this guy? What happened in his life that he could go from somebody who was filled with so much hate and jealousy that he would, without a thought, sell his brother right, to slavery, to this guy who now not only regrets that and, and feels the guilt and shame of it, but when faced with the same exact opportunity again, which was Joseph's whole design in all this, I mean, Joseph clearly set them up to create the exact same opportunity for them to ditch another brother. And Judah, not only, you know, pleads for grace and mercy, but he actually steps in and is willing to be a substitute and to sacrifice his life in place of his brother. What would cause a person to change like that? Well, as you think, as, as we think through this story, I think there's two things uh, that happened to Judah, and they're important things 
that caused change, that were the change agent in his life. And here's what I think they are. First of all, Judah was humbled by, uh, well, I put, I call it humbled by grace. I don't know if he was humbled so much by grace, but he was certainly humbled by his own sin, right? Uh, Judah was uh, humbled by his own sin. Uh, he had two, in scripture, we, he had two huge blots on his record. The first one, selling Joseph. The second one, his whole fiasco with Tamar, right? Uh, the one with Joseph, he had been able to hide well, right? Other than his brothers, nobody knew. The one with Tamar was as public as it gets. I mean, this made like the front page of the newspaper, you know? A guy sleeps with his daughter-in-law and has twins by her. I mean, that makes like the National Enquirer, you know? That would be, you know, in today's, it would be on the web everywhere. He would be like front page viral all over. Um, Put yourself in his shoes, okay? This is kind of embarrassing. This is really embarrassing, right? And uh, it kind of made him a fool. And he had to own that. Uh, very humbling, okay? It is very humbling. Uh, and in fact, he was so worried, if you remember in that story, that he would be uh, become the laughing stock that he, when he couldn't find Tamar, he said, well, just let her keep my stuff because otherwise I'll become the laughing stock. Well, he did anyway, right? Uh, now, uh, he sees that the other sin also cannot be hid, that God sees it all. And there really is something very humbling when we come face to face with our sin, right? Uh, and if jealousy, if, if what empowers jealousy is the fact that we can look down on others, there's no cure for it than finding ourselves at the very bottom with nobody under us, <laughs> you know? When, when we are so low that we realize uh, we are better than no one. We are superior to no one. Right? And I think Judah came to that place where he realized, you know, when it comes down to it, I am just a jerk. I'm a lousy person. And, you know, I'm not better than anybody. And I believe he was greatly humbled. For us as believers... Um, it's important for us to realize, as we talked about last week, that uh, we, we can be humbled by guilt, okay? Guilt carries with it incredible shame. Uh, and there's something very humiliating about walking around all the time in shame. But as believers, we're not supposed to do that. Okay, Jesus died to take the guilt and shame away. So we should never feel the shame of sin, right? But we should always be humbled by the effects of grace, Right? We should always be very aware of the fact that if it wasn't for God's grace, we would carry the shame of that sin. We should carry the shame of that sin, right? We should own it. And we should, uh, we should be ashamed of who we are, but by grace we have forgiveness. And that should be very humbling, right? The people who have known the extent of God's grace, grace in their life ought to be the most humble people in the world. Right? And we have to be the kind of people who look down on no one. Uh, as Ephesians 2 says, you know, we are saved not by works. We're saved by God so that no one can boast. We sang the song this morning, great line. I can boast in nothing else that the, the, the death and resurrection. I think I butchered the words there, but something like that. Uh, we boast in that, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. All else... We have nothing to brag about. We are above no one. But there's another thing that I think also 
was at work in Judah's life. And it is, it is this. It is that Judah began to appreciate what love is. Uh, you know, now at least 22 years, maybe more, have gone by since, since Joseph became a slave in Egypt. A lot of time has gone under the bridge. And Judah has grown in a lot of areas. And one of the things that I think he has come to understand is uh, what love is. Specifically, what a father's love is. You know, now he has become a father. He's become, as I said, a father who has lost children. He's become a father who's been kind of irrational in some of his choices because of his love for his remaining child. Right? Uh, he's a guy who appreciates what love can do in the heart of a father, what a father's love is about. And it's interesting, when you read through it, his, his account, you see a guy who is no longer bitter about Jacob's love for Benjamin, but rather he is almost in awe of it, right? He looks at this love and he goes, this is a cool thing. My father Jacob is the kind of dad who loves Benjamin like a father should, and that is a cool thing. And he upholds that as something that Joseph should respect, that this ruler of Egypt should be moved by, right? He appreciates for the first time, well, maybe not for the first time, but we see it now, that he gets what father's love is about. And that sometimes a father love is kind of crazy and irrational and doesn't make sense, but it's a good thing. And it's a worthy thing, and it's a right thing. It's interesting, this story um, has some very interesting similarities to the story of the prodigal son. story of the prodigal son, you've got a father who's got this kind of crazy love, Right? He's got this kind of irrational love and, interestingly, pours out this abundance of love on the youngest child, a youngest child who has proven he doesn't deserve it, who's been found guilty and wanting and lacking. But the father loves him anyway, right? And you've got an older brother. And what's the older brother's response to that father love? Well, he resents it, right? He is jealous that his father would care so much for the prodigal son. Okay, same, same dynamics going on in this story. Um, only Judah has finally got it, right? Judah has finally started to figure out and started to see, and he gets it. And what he gets is, is I think, this. Uh, this is the principle. Uh, and and I'm, I'm borrowing a bit from the story of the prodigal. I don't, know if, I don't know if Judah got all of this principle, but I'm borrowing from the story of the prodigal, so forgive me for stretching it a bit. But it's a great principle. It's this. You, will, you and I will never experience the Father's love for ourselves until we can appreciate the Father's love for our brothers down to the least of them. Okay? Let me say it again. We will never experience the Father's love for ourselves until we can appreciate the Father's love for our brothers and sisters down to the least of them, right? Judah had, a, had come to this point, okay, where he saw the value of the father's love for the least of the brothers, the littlest brother, and he treasured it. And for his, for his part, uh, he started to grow and understand the experience of father's love in his own life. Now, I don't know that he felt his father, you know, loved him like he did Benjamin, but he understood what father's love was. Right? Uh, and I think the principle is true for us in this respect. Uh, Jacob was a limited father. He could not multiply his love 12 times over. 
Our Heavenly Father, however, is infinite and perfect, right? God's perfect love for the least and littlest of the brothers, okay, is the love He has for you and I. And the reality is that oftentimes we can't see it for ourselves, right? It's hard to grasp it as it comes to us directly. We often see it better as, as God pours it out on those we think of as less than us, right? The little ones, the least of these. And that's why I believe Jesus says in the Gospels, he said, you know, remember the disciples, the disciples did not get this, right? And they kept chasing away the little ones. They kept chasing the little brothers away, saying, Jesus doesn't have time for you insignificant people, right? He's busy with us important people, right? So they kept chasing away the kids, the orphans, the blind people, the nobodies, right? Jesus doesn't have time for you nobodies, right? And what did Jesus say to that? Whoa, buddy. He says, unless you are one of those, I can't love you. So you better, you better learn to love them. Because my love for them is directly connected to my love for you. Unless you become what? The least of these. Unless you understand you are the little one. You cannot receive my love. Right? So that's how it works. When we start to appreciate God's love for the little ones, when we start to see God's tender heart of compassion for the people we would not give the time of day for, we will begin to experience something of God's love for us. Right? Uh, you know, who do we look down on? As you drive around Chiang Mai, what little, you know, old Thai guy that seems nothing to you and you pass by and could care less about? Uh, do you know that he is a little brother God loves dearly, right? That God has a heart for, right? The, the blind person that you pass by on the street, the little kids begging, whoever, I don't know who it is you look down on, and you discard as being little and nothing. God loves those little brothers, those little sisters, the least of them. And until we start to appreciate God's love for them and know how much God's heart is for them, Right? We really won't get God's love for us. Um, I think Judah began to get that. <clears throat> a great example of this is uh, one, one of my all-time favorites is St. Francis of Assisi. And we were in Italy. We got to go to Assisi, which really fueled again my interest in him. So I've been rereading some of his biographies. And there's a great story about Assisi in his early days before he had really before he had really given his life to Christ, when God was first working in his life, uh, he was a, a young uh, guy who was full of himself and wanted to be somebody and was off kind of chasing windmills and being a soldier. And he, he, had, he loved his horse, he loved his armor, he loved his sword, and he had actually been in some battles, got captured once, went off to fight another battle far away, had some problems, had to return home. But he wanted to be a soldier, right? He wanted to be a knight in shining armor. And one day he had this dream, and in this dream he had these just visions, from he believed from God, of uh, shields and swords and battles. And, and the, the shields were all emblazoned with a red cross, right? And the swords all were emblazoned with a red cross. And he woke up and he couldn't discern the meaning of the dream, didn't know what it was about, but he had these visions that God was going to use him on some great crusade, you know, to liberate some people somewhere, right? And that he would be a mighty man of the sword. 
And uh, the, the thing he took away from the dream is that God was telling him to be brave, to be brave and go out and conquer. So not long after that, he was riding down the road on his horse, and uh, he saw walking down the road a leper. And his initial instinct was to turn and run away from the leper. And he realized the fear and dread he had of this, this nobody, right? And his strong urge was to turn his horse and to flee off the road and put as much space as possible between him and this leper. And this vision, this dream came into his head. And uh, he understood that God wasn't saying you're going to go out and fight with the sword, but that you need to have courage to face your real enemies, your real fears. And so he got, he jumped on off his horse. He ran over to the leopard, threw his arms around him and embraced him and kissed him and gave him all of his money, right? I think he probably gave him his shirt too. I don't know. He was kind of crazy like that. And he faced that fear, right? He faced those that he looked down on. And instead of running away, he showed the father's love. Um, you know, that's what Judah does. Last thing, uh, to see this story and to not see in it, uh, you know, it's a redemptive meaning is, is to miss the whole story. And uh, I believe that all great stories are redemptive. A lot of great stories are redemptive, and they don't know that they are pointing to the great redeemer. But all great stories are amazingly redemptive. And this one is a great story because it's, it's redemptive. And here's this brother who at one point was driven with jealousy and hate and rage, who gives himself, throws down his life for his brother. Um, he takes, he's willing to take his brother's place. And, uh, you know, it really is a great picture of Jesus. Here, here's a guy, here's Judah, uh, who sees that his father's love and affection are such and that he is, his father's love is bound up with this boy. And it's, it's important to see that he does not sacrifice himself so much for love for Benjamin. It never indicates that he has this great love or compassion for Benjamin, that he does it for Benjamin. He makes it very clear, though, that he does it. Why? For his father. He loves his father. And he is impressed and struck by his father's love for his son, and he says, I could not bear to see the anguish if my father would lose another son, right? And so because of that, he is moved to give him himself uh, so that his father will not bear the pain of losing this special little brother, right? Um, you know, and I just picture Jesus, you know, Jesus standing before his father in heaven one day and seeing the anguish of God the Father who looked down on lost us, right? The lost little brothers, the lost little sisters who had gone away. And Jesus was moved by the compassion and love of God the Father who was agonizing over his lost children. And Jesus said, I will go. I will take their place. I will die for my little brothers and sisters, right? Send me. And so the Father does. And unlike this story, Jesus, of course, does take our place. And because of his death, we live. Um, let me just read Philippians 2. 
because it pulls together a lot of these principles. Um, Paul writes this, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of uh, equality with God as something to cling to or grasp, but instead he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Um, Paul tells us for two reasons. One, to help us understand what Jesus did. He took our place. He died, but he did not die uh, by being this great noble hero who died for those under him. He really became like one of those under him. He humbled himself, right? He humbled himself and he died for those who, as he became a man and a slave, he died for those who became his peers in, in many respects, right? Because he so lowered himself. And, uh, you know, Paul wants us to understand that's what Jesus did. But also, he says, we, he wants us to model that, to live that, right? Um, Jesus' death ought to be something that moves us deeply. Uh, that he stood before the Father and pled our case. But it's also something that should change us. That we would be truly humble people who see every person around us as a, as a brother. Uh, as Paul says, that we would consider them as more significant than ourselves. Right? Because that's what Jesus did for us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.